Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hola y bienvenidos to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jaime Sanchez Jr. Today we are joined by Cristina Rodriguez to discuss her new book, The President and Immigration Law, published by Oxford University Press in 2020 and co-written by Adam Cox. Rodriguez is the is the sorry Serbic professor of law at Yale Law School. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast, Cristina. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jaime. Before we jump in, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your research interests? I'm a professor of constitutional law and immigration law at Yale Law School, and I've had a long-standing and abiding interest in both of those subjects since I was a teenager growing up in San Antonio, Texas. I uh, come from a, a family that is in the United States because of immigration, and I grew up in a context of bilingualism and biculturalism, and so I've always been attuned to the way that immigration shapes American life and the life that immigrants lead in the United States. And I've also always been interested in government and politics. And so the uh, evolution towards uh, being a professor a professor of constitutional and immigration law is almost overdetermined in my case. And I have been teaching and writing in both areas of law for the last uh, 16 or so years. I've also spent some time uh, serving in the Department of Justice, where I've worked on immigration issues and questions involving presidential power, uh, which are at the heart of this book. And it turns out that one of the central controversies of our present moment is the scope of the president's power over immigration law and policy. And, and so understanding the dynamics around immigration policy requires also understanding uh, structural constitutional law and the powers of the branches of government. And, and that is what has brought me to this, this topic. Excellent. And, and you know, I'm, I'm first curious about what motivated you to write this book um, together with Adam Cox. You know, what were some of the um, 
main reasons to put this research out there? So Adam and I started this work, I would say around 2006 or 2007. We met at a conference of immigration law professors in Las Vegas, and we were both in the second or third year of teaching. And at the time, most of the dialogue, most of the the research and scholarly energy surrounded how and whether the courts would regulate immigration in some way or limit the power of Congress or otherwise protect the rights of immigrants. And each of us independently thought that that was missing a big part of the picture, that not enough attention was being paid by scholars to the ways in which the separation of powers between Congress and the executive was actually helping to shape immigration policy and the central role that presidential administrations uh, played historically and were playing at that moment in time in shaping immigration policy. So we had conversations about that. And it was toward the end of the George W. Bush administration when uh, the issue was not something that had yet exploded onto the front pages, but we wrote our first paper on the subject, trying to figure out if there was a history to be told, if there was a way of thinking both historically and theoretically about the role that uh, presidents versus, versus congresses have played in shaping the polity of the United States. And the work evolved from there. The, the issue became one of high profile during the Obama years and has only remained so over the last four years of the, the Trump administration and the the both the scope of the president's power over immigration law has come into view and the political importance of the who the president is and his potential effects on the lives of immigrants and the the shape of the American polity have become vivid front page uh, front page front page news. And so um, we eventually concluded that in order to understand what was happening around us, that we needed to understand where this dynamic came from. And so we thought that uh, because our collaboration on some academic papers had been successful, that we would turn it into a more comprehensive, farther reaching, uh, slightly more visionary book about the subject. So that's how we, we came to write this, which has been in the works for five or six years now. And among the reasons uh, it has taken as long as it has to write is that, like a lot of other people, uh, we were thrown for a loop by the election of Donald Trump and had thought that we understood what it meant to have presidential control of immigration policy uh, in a context in which, whether you had a Republican or a Democrat in office, immigration policy and rhetoric would look substantially similar uh, but that all changed in 2017, and and so um, we've spent a better part of the last three years trying to figure out what that means about our views of the structure of decision-making and immigration policy and also uh, how we ought to think about its implications from the point of view of uh, potential legal reform. You begin uh, the book by addressing... Uh, widely embraced myths about immigration law. Um, you just alluded right now to this myth that Congress, not the president, has the right to decide immigration policy, um, which the title uh, rightly suggests uh, counter to. 
in the first part of the book, you also talk about the early origins of presidential immigration law. Um, and you argue that presidential authority in this policy area is neither the product of today's hyperpolarization nor Supreme Court precedent from the Chinese exclusion era. And so what factors then enabled the presidency to gain the influence it has now in immigration law? So the, the source of the president's authority over immigration law, uh, the sources are myriad. Uh, if you look historically, there have been uh, constitutionally grounded sources of authority that have helped presidents shape migration policy. In the 19th century, up until the 1880s, there was really very little by way of congressional regulation of the movement of people inside and out of the United States. Uh, there were state and local governments that tried to control the movement of passengers into their territories, both uh, at the ports of entry, but also among and between the states. Uh, but at the federal level, it was really the president who was shaping migration to the United States through treaties that generally involved trade, but that often had a component that enabled migration to the United States. And that's how a lot of Chinese immigrants initially came uh, mostly to the West Coast of the United States in the 19th century through uh, the treaties that the United States entered into to promote trade in China that also protected the rights of the nationals of each country resident in the other. Uh, that tradition of foreign affairs related uh, migration policy has largely fallen by the wayside, though it is not irrelevant to the way that presidents think about immigration today. Um, but the source today that is the most important for understanding the president's immigration power is also something that has roots in the 19th century. And, and that is uh, the rise of the system of immigration enforcement. Uh, it's through a very ordinary constitutional power, which is the power to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, that the president exerts control over immigration policy. And in the book, we tell the story of three factors that intertwined throughout the course of the late 19th century through the, the 20th to put the president in a position to control central policy choices of the immigration regime in our contemporary setting. Uh, so I'm happy to talk about each of those in turn, if that would be of interest, Jaime. But it's something that, um, it's, a, it's a dynamic that has uh, deep historical roots that have to be understood in order to know why we are where we are today. Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, if you wouldn't mind just walking us through um, those those very generally those um, three factors, and I think help us understand this concept that you talk about in the book um, about the shadow immigration system. Yes, so the, these three factors combine uh, to create what we call the, the shadow system of immigration, which is a system that sits alongside the legal system that Congress has created in the code and that's governed by really elaborate rules. Uh, so the first important development is the rise of a deportation state, a deportation legal regime. 
in the 19th century, uh, there were, as I said before, few limits on migration into and out of the United States. And it wasn't until um, the Chinese Exclusion Act and a few precursor statutes that Congress started enacting rules that made uh, that, that determined who could enter, but then also made those who had entered deportable. Uh, so the concept of deportation uh, develops in the late 19th, early 20th century. At the outset, uh, deportation was something that was temporary. The earliest deportation laws had statutes of limitations attached to them, which meant that someone was deportable only for a certain number of years after being in the United States. Uh, those disappear by the early 20th century. And over time, the grounds that make someone deportable start to grow. Uh, and one of the most important of those grounds that helps to account for the dynamics in our current system is that anyone who's present without legal status is removable at any time. So anyone who lacks an immigration status uh, is persistently in violation of the law. That is alongside a variety of other grounds that make someone removable. And the, the picture that we draw in the book is of a system that grows increasing, increasingly probationary over time, that non-citizens are in the United States, uh, in a sense, on probation. Their status is contingent. Even those who are lawful permanent residents, the kind of gold standard of immigration status, have no uh, indefeasible right to remain inside the United States. So, so that's a legal regime that makes presence here contingent. And of course, different statuses along that, uh, it, within that regime, uh, have different degrees of stability attached to them. Uh, the second important component is also something that develops beginning in the late 19th century in connection with the Chinese Exclusion Acts and accelerates over the course of the 20th. And that is uh, the creation of a deportation bureaucracy. So it's, it's one thing to have laws that make people removable uh, from the United States, but you need state capacity in order to make that uh, vision come to life, in order to make those grounds actually mean something. And initially, there was very little screening and a very small bureaucracy to manage uh, deportation provisions. Uh, but gradually over the course of the, the 20th century, that bureaucracy develops. The Border Patrol is created in the 1920s. Um, initially, even at the border, there was little policing and there was certainly next to none in the interior of the United States. But once uh, Congress creates the, the Border Patrol and begins devoting resources to it, the enforcement apparatus begins to develop. And alongside the creation of these numerous grounds for screening people out of the United States, uh, Congress uh, gives legal authorities to uh, officials to enforce those laws and then provides the requisite resources to ensure that there are enough uh, officials to actually um, make the deportation state function. And so what you have today is a, a law enforcement regime that uh, is showered with resources. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security, which contains the immigration enforcement agencies, has a larger budget than all other federal law enforcement combined and is capable of deporting upwards of 400,000 people per year. So it's, it's a massive capacity uh, that 
has been showered with resources over the last two decades. Uh, a crucial moment in the expansion of the bureaucratic footprint was the creation of department of the Department of Homeland Security uh, in the years after the attacks of September 11th, uh, when renewed attention was paid to uh, screening at the border and other means of uh, ensuring interior forms of enforcement, which included immigration enforcement. So, so that's the second factor, the, the legal regime plus state capacity to make good on that legal regime. Uh, and then the last factor that, that gives rise to the, the shadow system, as we uh, name it, is the dramatic acceleration of illegal immigration in the late 20th century. As I mentioned before, uh, for decades, being present inside the United States without status, whether you entered across the border clandestinely or have overstayed a visa makes you removable. Uh, that population of people who fall into that categories, uh, into those categories, ballooned in the late 20th century, uh, beginning in the 1970s and peaking uh, somewhere in the early 2000s. Now, the, the reasons for unauthorized immigration across the United States border are complex, and uh, they're debated by economists, sociologists, historians, uh, and uh, others, legal scholars. Uh, but they include some of the factors that you would expect when you have a dramatic wage differential on two sides of the border. There's movement of people. You have uh, labor demand on the American side and uh, significant underemployment in a large young population in Mexico. Uh, there's uh, immigration uh, produced as a result of that family ties and uh, migration networks that uh, were created through a variety of uh, both social and legal phenomena throughout the 20th century uh, propel migration. And whatever the, the right answer is as to why uh, we had high levels of illegal immigration for so many decades in the late 20th century, the fact of the matter is, is that today there are between 10 and 11 million people inside the United States who are here in violation of the immigration laws. And all of those people are automatically and always deportable under the immigration code. And that is the shadow system we describe, a system where the law on the books, which is supposed to be a world in which uh, there is no illegal immigration, does not match the law on the ground. And the officials in charge of managing that shadow system are the executive officials who populate the enforcement bureaucracy that has been built up over time. And so the choices about who within that shadow system will be allowed to stay and, and who will be deported are made through the executive branch, uh, atop which sits the, the president of the United States. And so that shadow system, which we argue is central to the way we think about immigration, today is one that's run by the president and executive branch officials and operates according to a logic of enforcement and uh, deportation and forbearance from deportation, which are central features of the way we debate immigration now. It's interesting that you mention the largesse of the Department of Homeland Security because this isn't just a story about the separation of powers or presidential versus congressional authority, but also one about federalism, I think. 
how did the executive branch consolidate enforcement power, not just in the federal bureaucracy or in this state capacity factor that you mentioned, but also across state and local government agencies? So the history of immigration federalism is a fascinating one to me. And states and localities have always been players uh, in immigration policymaking. As I suggested before, at in the early decades of the Republic, it was mainly state and local governments that played the role of uh, attempting to regulate movement across borders. Uh, the state of Massachusetts even had its own deportation regime in uh, the antebellum period and uh, deported uh, Irish paupers from its territory. Even once the federal government began building its own deportation regime in the, in the late 19th century, it still initially relied a lot on state and local officials because it hadn't yet created this bureaucracy that I described and also because state and local officials, as remains the case today, are much more intimately connected to the population, uh, to immigrant communities that would need to be uh, policed, or the government would have an interest in policing. So if you fast forward to our, our modern setting, even though the federal government has created a massive federal enforcement bureaucracy, and it's presumed that immigration regulation is constitutionally assigned to the federal government, the federal government still remains dependent on states and localities, uh, in part because many of the grounds of removal today uh, result from criminal convictions. And so things like arrest data that state and local governments have are incredibly valuable to federal enforcement officials. And without that data, it's difficult for the federal government to enforce the immigration laws as they are written. And so uh, the state and local state and local police are integrated into the system of federal enforcement. And there's been a long struggle over the last uh, 20 years or so, or so to figure out exactly how much power those state and local officials should be allowed to have. And there are some jurisdictions, uh, take Arizona, for example, uh, where politicians have believed that the federal government's not doing its job adequately and they've tried to pass legislation at the state level that mirrors federal legislation to give the federal government uh, more enforcement power. Um, and then there are numerous jurisdictions, my state of Connecticut, New York City, Los Angeles, California, uh, that want to have no part of immigration enforcement, where uh, immigration enforcement is seen as a threat to vital communities within uh, their jurisdictions, and so have uh, chosen not to cooperate with federal immigration officials. And so at various stages, the federal bureaucracy and whoever has been in charge of the White House has had conflict with state and local actors within the system over their vision for immigration enforcement and the extent to which those who might be targets of enforcement are in fact people who belong in the country and should be shielded from enforcement. And, and that all also feeds into the political debate surrounding immigration because that conflict over enforcement becomes a way to have that, that really uh, 
charged debate about who belongs and and why and what can be done to either reinforce their presence or what should be done to prevent them from remaining if your view is that uh, people who are here in violation of the law ought not be uh, given the respect of the law. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Let's talk about those different visions of enforcement. And I love the term uh, that you that you help, I don't know if you coined it or, or proposed in the book, but this problem of the discretionary nation, mm-hmm. right? Um, using the authority vested in the presidency to help create uh, this notion of who belongs and who doesn't belong in the nation. Um, You look to the Obama and Trump administrations as contrasting examples of how the president can attempt to centralize the federal enforcement strategy. What are the main differences that you outline in the book between Obama and Trump's approach to enforcement discretion and how have their distinct policies impacted the Latino population in particular? So these two administrations could be characterized as taking diametrically opposed positions on how the discretion that's vested in the executive should be exercised. So uh, the the DACA policy that by now has become a household uh, term, uh, which the Obama administration initiated in order to insulate the so-called dreamers, people who had been brought to the United States as children and who grew up in the United States but still lacked legal status uh, from deportation and uh, also authorizing them to work inside the United States, uh, which uh, is the lifeline that DACA provides to hundreds of thousands of um, young immigrants. That, That vision that enforcement discretion should be cabined and that forbearance should be mobilized at a large scale, uh, which is embodied in DACA, is very different from the way in which the Trump administration imagines uh, its discretion being exercised. It has tried in various ways to close off opportunities for forbearance and has created a strong presumption against uh, under enforcement of the law or forbearance, even in, in individual cases, because the view instead is that to the extent possible, the immigration law should be enforced to the letter and that uh, a maximalist enforcement vision requires 
deporting anyone and everyone who comes within the, the system unless they can show uh, through a protracted process that they have a claim uh, to remain. And, and those claims for people who lack legal status uh, are few and far between. And so the idea is uh, to use the discretion uh, in pursuit of enforcement maximalism, using the law uh, as far as it allows the president to go instead of using the law um, in a tempered way to carve out groups of people uh, for whom removal is not appropriate because of the claims to belonging that they have, maybe not as a matter of law, uh, but as a matter of reality. But what joins the two administrations, and this is uh, part of what defines what we call the discretionary nation, is this underlying legal structure that makes millions of people deportable uh, without question because of their lack of legal status, and which makes it possible for the enforcement bureaucracy to decide who gets to stay and who is going to be deported, such that you can tack back and forth between an administration willing to issue targeted enforcement priorities and one that wants to instill fear in the immigrant population, where you have officials who are saying uh, people who are here without status should be looking over their shoulders because everyone should be afraid of, of deportation. And it's that contingency that is built into the structure of the law as it has evolved over the last hundred years that uh, is, we think, deeply destabilizing and unsettling and something that won't be solved by electing a president who uh, favors rhetoric of belonging and uh, forbearance, but requires a much deeper kind of reform. And, and so um, that is where we turn uh, towards the end of the book to understand the, the dangers of this enforcement logic, the dangers of a system where people's status uh, is, is discretionary, to understand how the structure of the law enables cruelty and, and therefore is a structure that needs to be changed. I'm, I'm curious, what are some of the possible reforms to the current presidential policymaking system as it now stands? You mentioned um, right now and in the book that avoiding or shifting power away from the executive branch is just not really feasible. Um, what are some potential reforms? Does it involve the courts? Does it involve Congress? So that question has multiple answers. And it a lot depends on what is politically possible. So we start from the premise that the shadow system will persist. It's something that has uh, been difficult to uproot. There are strong vested interests in maintaining it. Uh, one way of describing the rise of illegal immigration is that it was part of a semi-deliberate um, attempt over time to to import uh, an exploitable labor force uh, and to make the status of that labor force uh, contingent and uncertain, to make it difficult to enforce labor protections and uh, and and other kinds of uh, human rights protections. And so the, the interests that might have contributed to that political economy of immigration, uh, a system that 
looks away at employers who hire unauthorized workers because of the interest in having them as workers um, is one that makes it difficult to reform the system altogether. And there have been moments over the last 20 years where Congress has gotten close to enacting reform that would include a legalization of the unauthorized population as its centerpiece, but it has never broken through. Uh, so given the difficulty of reforming the shadow system, we start with uh, an exploration of uh, how a president who acts responsibly would use his authority over the immigration system. And uh, we use the, the DACA policy as an example of how high-level accountable officials can work to try to constrain what we think is a semi-militarized law enforcement culture from engaging in abuses and from trying to match the reality of the lives of immigrants in the United States with something approaching a legal status, even though deferred action is not a, a lawful status that entitles someone to remain. It remains a discretionary status. Uh, and so that's an important part of the project. And uh, reacting to abuses by a presidential administration by trying to restrain the, the White House or other high-level officials' ability to control the enforcement bureaucracy, we think would be counterproductive over the long term, given that the only way to make the shadow system humane is to have uh, a political class of leadership that will set priorities and try to, to supervise to ensure um, something approximating a humane deportation system. But that's obviously subject to the vagaries of politics, and it really just keeps in place a system that enables domination of large populations that are interwoven into American society, into the lives of uh, many citizens even in, in the United States. And so the second component of a reform agenda is uh, to see why this enforcement logic uh, is a threat to the rule of law and to basic principles of a, of a democratic order and to call for a rethinking of it um, along two lines. The, the first is uh, that a legalization program is absolutely essential and advocates have been arguing for this for, for 20 years um, or really since a few years after the last legalization program in 1986, so even longer. Uh, and it's something that that requires uh, persuading enough members of Congress and the population as a whole that people without status are uh, worthy of status, entitled to status. But that by itself is not enough uh, because it's important to think about ways to prevent uh, a shadow system from reemerging. And of course, the way that might happen will differ in the future than it has in the past. One of the things that's characteristic of migration today is that illegal immigration from Mexico is approaching net zero. Uh, and that's because many of the factors that were prompting it in the late 20th, early 21st century no longer exists. Um, the Mexican population is older. It's much better developed. There are more employment opportunities than, than there were in prior decades. And, and uh, U.S. markets have, labor markets have changed dramatically, especially uh, since the Great Recession. And so the nature of a future shadow system may differ. Uh, the humanitarian crisis 
that has emerged from Central America and has produced uh, large numbers of migrants at our southern border seeking asylum is an example of the evolution of the, the migratory pressures on the United States. Um, but it's it suggests that the unpredictability of uh, migration patterns means that we need legal mechanisms to um, to prevent a shadow system from recreating, which is exactly what happened after the last legalization program in 1986. And so we have some thoughts about how to do that uh, through uh, legal reform, including by reintroducing statutes of limitations so that someone is only deportable, um, if at all, for a brief period of time instead of for a lifetime. And that acknowledges that settlement occurs and that settlement, it's, it's disruptive to undo it, not just to the person who is deported, but it has ripple effects to families and, and communities. And also that it could make sense to empower a bureaucracy, not just to remove people and exclude people, but also to give people status and so that you might have uh, processes by which people acquire status through uh, an application um, to an executive official over time based on certain criteria that you might lay out in advance, but that enable a kind of a periodic management of uh, a shadow system instead of uh, making it only about whether someone's going to be deported or not, and, and, and therefore whether the state's coercive authority is going to be invoked or not, as opposed to uh, enabling settlement um, and integration. So those are some ways of thinking about how to reimagine the system. And if there were to be the political will to undo the shadow system, how we would, would think about uh, first actually undoing it, but then preventing it from arising again. And I don't know if you're interested in exploring some of those possibilities. There's a lot to also be said about the role of the courts, and I can and certainly uh, go on at length about the role of the courts. But before doing that, maybe um, if there are elements of reforming the shadow system that would be of interest, I'd love to talk about them. I think uh, our listeners would be very interested in, in hearing about the courts, especially in the contemporary context where the Supreme Court in particular is facing its own kind of crisis of legitimacy um, in general. And, and also maybe bringing in what's at stake specifically in the 2020 election. What can we draw from um, your work to help us understand the uh, Biden versus Trump um, uh, decision. So the the courts have play a somewhat limited role in our account, uh, and from the perspective of constitutional theory, the story that we're mostly telling is of politics occurring outside of the courts and law developing outside of the courts. That said, um, since the era of Chinese exclusion, the courts have played an important role in shaping the parameters for action by the political branches. And at least since the mid 20th century, uh, the courts have in fact um, defended bedrock constitutional provisions as applied to non-citizens. So both the, the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment, which prohibits the government from depriving anyone of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, and uh, the Equal Protection Clause, 
of the 14th Amendment, which prohibits states from discriminating, uh, from denying people equal protection of the law, uh, both of those apply to persons, uh, not to citizens. And so the, the courts have applied those to limit uh, both the federal government and the state government's uh, authorities to, to regulate and discriminate against non-citizens. And the most important way in which that has uh, been relevant with respect to something like the shadow system is that it ensures that both that uh, people in the custody of the government, people who are detained pursuant to executive power, have some grounding for challenging the extent of their detention, as well as the conditions of their detention, and also have a, a claim to have their cases adjudicated uh, before, um, certainly through an administrative process, but also potentially through a court uh, before they can be removed or denied asylum or, or what have you. And the courts have also played an important role in rejecting the most extreme arguments that the federal government makes on behalf of its own power. So you often see the federal government in court defending what we might call uh, extreme immigration exceptionalism, arguing that there's no role for courts whatsoever in reviewing immigration judgments made by the, the federal government, that that's committed exclusively to the political branches. And courts have resisted that argument um, and kept themselves in the mix. They've also uh, res resisted very uh, narrow readings of immigration statutes or readings of immigration statutes that favor the government um, in extreme ways. So that's the that's the positive side of the picture. But you are exactly right to ask whether that's the way to think about the role the courts are playing today. And there are two recent decisions by the Supreme Court in particular that uh, are ominous in, in our view and may suggest that there's actually not much to hope for from the courts. Though I think when you're talking about individual rights at stake, uh, it remains important to try to seek court review and, and to press claims of individual rights before the courts. Those two decisions um, involve, on the one hand, the policy of the Trump administration, and on the other, uh, the use of the Trump administration of a congressional authority that's been in the code since 1996. So the first is the Supreme Court's decision uh, essentially upholding the so-called travel ban or Muslim ban that Trump announced not long after he was inaugurated. Uh, excluding nationals of uh, several Muslim-majority countries. Uh, many people think in order to make good on his campaign promise to shut down Muslim immigration to the United States. And the, the short version of the long litigation uh, that ensued after that travel ban was that at the end, the Supreme Court essentially said that as long as the government has a facially legitimate and bona fide reason for its exclusion, the fact that it might also have been motivated by the desire to discriminate on the basis of religion is immaterial. And that was a breathtaking holding because the court had not really before said at a time when something like that would have been illegal as a matter of domestic constitutional law, that it was nonetheless permissible to to import that kind of discrimination into immigration law. But that is effectively what the Supreme Court said 
in Trump versus Hawaii, and it credited the national security justification that the administration gave, which if you looked at the trajectory of the travel ban and all of the rhetoric that uh, came out of the, the president himself uh, in the lead up to it would have been really difficult to credit as uh, anything more than a, a pretext or something that might have foundation in fact, but that was um, that was identified as a way of making good on these discriminatory promises. So that's the first ominous decision. The second is one that came out just this past term and uh, involves very technical questions, but ultimately amounts to a holding that makes it next to impossible for someone seeking asylum or some other claim to remain in the United States uh, at the border uh, from getting to a court to show that their claim is valid. In the course of rejecting the claim of someone who entered without inspection uh, for a second hearing to make his asylum case, the court essentially said that um, the writ of habeas corpus, which is the venerable writ uh, that we inherited from England and that enables people to challenge their detention by the executive, doesn't apply in deportation cases. And that's not something the court had really said clearly before. In fact, it had said quite the opposite. And uh, that dramatically narrows the channels by which people might be able to bring claims to court. Uh, and that decision also seemed to suggest that this provision that I mentioned in the code uh, that Congress added in 1996, which allows the government to remove someone without any process at all, it's called expedited removal, as long as they've been in the country for less than two years, was was valid. Um, it, it didn't go so far as to say that was the case in, in all instances, but the, there's a strong suggestion that that is true and that due process uh, in those circumstances does not require any form of hearing. That is another breathtaking reading of the Constitution as applied to, to immigrants. And so those two together, uh, despite the... Um, the wide-ranging precedents that exist to protect the rights of immigrants are suggestive of a court that's going to become less and less skeptical of whatever the government decides to do and however uh, the next president chooses to use the authorities that Congress has given him in statute, which are quite sweeping. Uh, and so that, in a sense, justifies our decision to give the courts uh, the role of minor players in the story. And the, the courts are taking themselves out of the picture as we speak. Well, this has just been such an insightful conversation about an ongoing debate that will certainly not soon leave us. Listeners, we have been talking with Cristina Rodriguez about her new book, The President and Immigration Law out now from Oxford University Press. Cristina, thank you so much for being with us here on New Books Latino. It was such a pleasure, Jaime. I always enjoy talking about this, even though um, the final conclusion was, uh, was disheartening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 